All right, so last, it might have been Sunday, I don't remember, my friend um, Casey Caldwell, who was slapping the bass up here, he sends me a text and he says this, Michael Phelps is about to race a great white shark on television. Did anyone see this? Okay. And I went, when somebody sends you that text, you start changing channels, right? You're like, okay, great white shark. But while I'm changing channels, I'm thinking, there's no way this can be as cool in, in real life as it is in my mind. They're going to disappoint me somehow. And I was right. And, you know, they, um, they basically take all these scientists and they try to get a, a great white shark to swim in a straight line, which is difficult. They drag a uh, seal decoy behind him and they clock how fast he's going and then they clock him hitting a seal do- decoy jumping out of the, air, uh, the ocean, which is cool. It's cool to watch, a very powerful thing. And um, then they like do weird stuff. They give Michael Phelps like um, this like mermaid tail that has a spring in it. He's the fastest swimmer in the world and we're like, okay, you're fast, but can you swim different? I mean, it's like, they want him to swim like sideways like a shark against the shark. And I'm like, God, what are they doing? And um, they, then when they go out to race, to race the shark in the South African Ocean, they have like 40 drones in the air and swimmers with guns and all this stuff so that no actual shark gets anywhere near Michael Phelps. And then they digitally put in a shark so now he's racing a digital shark that they've programmed to swim what they think is as fast as a shark can swim. Okay? I'm like, you want to see the guy go fast? Strap a stake to him. <laughs> you will never see him swim faster than that. And yeah, I don't know what an, if it's an accurate representation, but the reason why I bring up that story is as I'm watching him like train and he's just doing normal laps without the fin thing, my thought was, I miss swimming and my shoulder not hurting. It was a weird thought process, but me and Lisa have been working out a bunch, and I really wanted to add swimming to the, because I used to love swimming labs to swim and like swim teams growing up and stuff, and I really wanted to add that to our repertoire of uh, workouts, but my shoulder, I jacked up, that's a technical term, jacked up um, about four years ago to where this is the worst thing ever to like push down like that. The reason why I was at the chiropractor is he's actually been working on it. And we've seen some improvement, but it probably never will be the same as when I was young. And, and what you see Solomon doing inside of these two chapters as we wrap up Ecclesiastes is kind of remembering youth and how he should have lived youth and speaking to young men. And, that, you know, it's, it's a cool thing. It's something we've all done is go, I remember what it was like to be young and it, and it felt good and... Um, but it's not a, um, this isn't trying to look at youth and saying it was so much better then, um, although we do know people like that and we'll address that. Um, but these, this is definitely Solomon as he wraps this up as an old man, looking back at his youth and thinking through how he could have done things better. And so it, let's, let's jump into 11 real quick. He starts 11 and kind of says, you know, diversify your work, spread things out. And then in three and four it says, if the clouds are full of rain, they emptied themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So if you break all of that down, he's saying, hey, you got your work. Get after it. Stop being worried about what's going to happen. And go do what you're here, what you're meant to do. Do your work. Do it well. Tragedy will come. 
this tree analogy, you'll deal with it then. And you got to risk in your work to move forward, right? You, you can't sit there and worry or nothing will get done. Worry is wasted, right? And it, but culturally, it seems like we're the most planned generation in history. We have this idea about how things should go and nothing should get in the way of that. So you have this idea like, uh, okay, I'm going to have my first kid when I'm like 32. We'll have, we'll have 2.5 children and, you know, they'll be, uh, they're going to go to Harvard, but when their pop career is done, right? I want them to be totally done with that. And so you have this thing laid out of what your life should be like and what your kid's life should be like. And any interruption in that seems like horrendous. And when we do marital counseling, this is my favorite question. How old do you think you'll be when you have kids? And they say this, any of you who have kids know this is a ridiculous statement. Well, we'll wait till we're ready. <laughs> you're never ready to have kids. As soon as that kid comes out, you go, oh my kid, what do I do with this? Do, do, I, do I raise it like Simba? And say, you know, like, I mean, all of a sudden, you're totally aware of your inadequacy to raise a human life, right? And uh, you hear these questions, like they're trying to plan, Right? But how, what will work look like when I have a kid? I got to figure out daycare. I got to do these things. What, what if something goes wrong? Childbirth, it's a crazy situation, right? And you hear guys say like, what if it's a girl? <laughs> Scary things, right? But you can't, you're never ready. So Lisa and I got married young. Um, they joke up here quite a bit. Like we got married when we were in middle school. That is a lie. Um, I was 20 years old. She was almost 19. That was particular words I picked there. Almost 19. And, um, and it was great. When, we were, when I was 21 years old, so we'd been married a year, um, her brother had gotten into some trouble in California. He was 13. And uh, he didn't really have anywhere to go. He was like, we're going to put him in a group home in California unless somebody comes and gets him. And um, I thought, okay, we'll take him in. Because you pretty much know everything you need to know about life at 21. So... I said, all right, he'll come in and he'll be so appreciative of me taking him in, rescuing him from the depths, saying, he'll probably make me breakfast every morning and we'll hope he can cook. I mean, it was a hard time. It was hard. But we rolled with those punches because we, we thought, how would Jesus want us to go after this situation? This kid, who of no fault of his own, really, at 13 years old, had a lack of parental supervision in a place where that was a bad, bad thing and led him down a path and we had the opportunity to help curb that. Totally unprepared. But let me tell you what, I'm super thankful for those moments. Made me a better father to my kids now. Um, My relationship with him is super tight. He's about to have his first child. Um, I did their wedding um, a little while back and um, it was just an honor and our relationship is super tight um, because of of those, those hardships, you know? And so I couldn't have scripted all of that, but we roll with it. But, and I'm not saying it's not good to have plans. You got to make plans, right? You want to have an idea of where you want things to go, but you can't make decisions out of fear, but with a boldness and a confidence that God is with you. And I, I try to, when I read through this, I said, this is similar to approaching your life like we try to approach this service. We plan this pretty well. We kind of know what's going to happen, but we try to give freedom to the Holy Spirit to guide us and see what happens. Lord, this is our plan, but if you want to steer us, your plan is going to be better than ours. So just give us what you got. Teach us what you want to teach us. 
In verse 9, he says, Rejoice, O young men, in your youth, and let your heart cheer in the days of your youth. Walk the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all things, God will bring you into judgment. It's interesting to me. The beginning of this sounds like a Braveheart speech to me, right? Rejoice in the days of your youth, right? That was a terrible Braveheart impression. I should have leaned more Scottish. I've seen that movie a hundred times. Um, okay. And it's this, you know, he's lifting him up. God, those were good days. Rejoice, young men. Enjoy them. By the way, don't forget that God will bring you judgment on everything you do in this time. That, you know, that's an important thing to remember. Youth is a gift. Enjoy it, but honor God. And as we see Solomon as an old man looking at his youth, every guy has done this. Every woman has done it. We... We remember those days. Songs have been written about it, right? I mean, I'm a music guy, so I love lyrics. Um, I think they're vitally important, um, and we should care about what a song says. In 1982, John Mellencamp writes this about this very thing. Join me if you're ready, okay? Oh, yeah, life goes on. Come on. Long after the feet of living is gone. I tried to listen, and I screwed up the words myself. Um, Right? He even says, holding on to 16 as long as you can. Changes come around real soon. We're going to be women and men. Right? Responsibilities come in. Enjoy this time. A slightly more modern reference, if you're under 20, um, is from a band called 21 Pilots. We will not sing this because it's wrapped, in, nor will I wrap it for you. Here you go. <laughs> Some people got excited. Here, here it goes. Um, in one of the verses, he says, sometimes a certain smell will take me back to when I was young. How come I never am able to identify where it's coming from? I'd make a candle out of it if I ever found it. Try to sell it, never sell out of it. I'd probably only sell one. It'd be to my brother because we have the same nose, same clothes, homegrown, a stone's throw from a creek we used to roam. But it would remind us of a time when nothing really mattered. Out of student loans and treehouse homes, we all would take the ladder. And was that close enough to rapping? Okay. Um, right? And the chorus of that song says, I wish I could turn back time to the good old days when my mom was saying, us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. Rejoice in your youth. You got little responsibility. You got little stress in your life. Those were good days. Rejoice in it. But the last part of that verse is hard to remember when you feel invincible. <laughs> But know that for all of these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remembering God in the days of your youth when you feel invincible and when you have all this access to so much possibility is the message that Solomon decides this is vitally important for me to tell young people. In 12.1, he kind of continues in this thought process. He says, remember also the creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. I don't delight in these days because my body is failing. These are hard days. And to me, this is pointing to if all of your joy was wrapped up in the days of old, the, the glory days of what you could accomplish when you were in high school or in college or things like that, you'll have no joy as an older person. You have to know what God is doing right now. 
and where he's pushing you so that you can enjoy being part of his action. It's a beautiful thing he wants you to be part of it. You can't live back there. You all know people like that. You look at your Facebook, they're hanging out with the same people they hung out with in high school, going to the same places, and you're like, that is weird. You should grow up, right? (laughs) There's more to life than those moments, but people can get stuck. Do you know anyone who's stuck? Are you stuck? Don't raise your hand. We must move on. We cannot find our identity in those things that we've done in our youth. This is the best example I could think of this. Watch this video clip. Back in 82, I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Watch this. Ah! What the heck are you doing? That's what I'm talking about. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? Yeah. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things would have been different. I'd have gone pro. In a heartbeat. I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere. You know, soaking it up in a hot tub with my soulmate. <laughs> Obviously an extreme example, but the point is made, right? You have to be able to look forward. You have to live in this moment, sitting in this place of asking, what if, or if only these things would have happened, my life would be totally different. That makes you stuck in the past. That's no good for anybody. So you go to these high school reunions, you see people who you're like, I don't even know why I cared so much about what these people thought of me then. And why haven't they moved on? Or am I stuck here? I have to ask these questions of myself too. Because life does move on. And as Solomon goes further in this chapter, he starts to describe the evil days, as he calls it, as his body starts to, to frail. He talks about his muscles weakening and his, his grip is no longer strong. He can't even stand up straight anymore. Your hearing fades and you're afraid to even walk down the street because you might fall. Because all of a sudden, falling is terrible on what it will do to your body, not like when you were young. And then he gives these beautiful analogies that you have to look up unless you're way smarter than me, which is possible. He says, the almond tree blossoms, which means your hair turns white. The grasshopper drags himself along, which means your body has grown frail and thin. He says, the caperberry is ineffective which basically means you're no longer ready for business time. In the first service, I asked this question, do I need to define that anymore? And I swear, a 10-year-old girl in the front said, nope. (laughs) Which was great. Right? So the body fails. You got a time frame. You know, and it's... He goes on to say, the man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Life goes on once you're gone. In the message in 6 and 7, it says, life, lovely while it lasts, is soon over. Life as we know it, precious and beautiful ends. The body is put back 
in the same ground it came from. The spirit returns to God who first breathed it. Wrapping this idea that your ultimate responsibility is to God first. Say, you will return to God. And as Solomon witnesses the breaking down of his body, and he's saying, honor the days. Honor your creator in the days of your youth. This brings three real important themes to my mind about how we live when we're young, how we live when we're able. Let's not even say young. Because if you're in here and you understand what I'm saying, you have the opportunity to make these shifts, okay? The one is investment. Uh, My dad's here with me today. My dad is a financial planner um, for the second half of his career. And we, we plan for retirement. We plan for being old. We understand our body will not be able to do the things that we used to be able to do. Our mind doesn't spin as well when we're older. Um, And so we prepare for that financially by putting things away and getting ready for that time. Everybody clear on that? So this, this, um, I've never thought about until this week while we're studying. You all have some, an older person in your life who tells you the same three stories over and over again. The same three stories. And you are polite. So you nod your head and you say, yeah, I remember. And then you laugh at the same punchline at the end of that story. How much better is it to invest scripture in your mind so deeply that at the end of your life, this is what you're reciting? How much better is it to invest songs about Jesus so when you lay on your bed, the things that are the biggest part about you, you'll be able to sing and share with your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. The most important thing to you, you will be able to share with them because you invested early in your life and often the most important thing. So you won't tell about how you can throw a stake at a kid on a bike. You will tell of the wonders of the God who came to earth to save us. So investment. Because here's the facts. Matlock will not serve be sufficient for two to four years while you're in some home, right? But Jesus will. So let's sharpen our minds on the things of God and instill them in us so deeply that we will not forget them even in our old age. So how are you investing in the things of God now in your routines and in your pursuit of Jesus that will sustain you in your old age right now? And how are you, parents, investing and instilling these truths in your kids so that they will not lose them? You know, Benji Cash, when he was up here, he said, you know, my grandparents have the scripture that's like, um, when you sit on the toilet, you can see it, right? And I'll never forget that scripture, because he sat there a lot. <laughs> and so he... He read that scripture over and over and over again, and now it's just part of him. This is how we learn, right? Right? We do something over and over and over and over and over, and then suddenly you're like, I don't even remember how I started to learn that, but now I can just do it. It becomes part of who you are. It's a beautiful thing in how God designed us. This also brings up this, uh, the idea of pleasure, and theologians have written about pleasure quite a bit because it can be a problem for us. Um, in our pursuit of God. So if all of your pleasure is wrapped up in what you could do when you were young, once again, we will be miserable older people, (laughs) 
right? I remember walking to the back of my truck one time with Luke Jones, and I opened the back of it, and it's pretty high. It's like this big, and Luke's probably 19 at the time, and he just like two feet goes, and he jumps, he lands on the back, and he goes, I love being young. And I went, I said, I don't know, I can pay a mortgage? I don't know. They, um, but it was, you know, there was pleasures in being young. But, and here's the thing to be totally clear. God is the inventor and creator of pleasure. So either he invented those to trip you up and try to make you, cause you problems. Or he invented you or gave you these pleasures so that you could experience them inside of the boundaries that he has set up. And the world lies to us and says that putting boundaries around anything that we say is pleasureful that eliminates the joy that we experience in that pleasure. But that's wrong. It's entirely wrong. Boundaryless pleasure crushes pleasure itself by turning something enjoyable into slavery or into addiction and takes something beautiful and makes it destructive or hurtful. So that's why God gives us these protections around pleasure inside this world because sin is the lie that unbounded pleasure is the way to joy. Well, instead, it's the path to brokenness. And anyone who's dealt with addiction in here understands what I'm saying, but anything can lead us in this path. God must be your ultimate pleasure. You're going to seek to enjoy him and glorify him forever in enjoying the pleasures of this world inside a strong relationship with him is a joy that you only know when you pursue it fully. Paul Tripp says, it is the greater pleasure of God, my joy in my relationship with God, my joy in pleasing God, my celebration of God's grace, my desire to live the way this beautiful creator made me that protects me from a slavery to pleasure that gets me in trouble. So pleasure requires boundaries. And let's be very clear, okay? Because the American Christian kind of feels like you compartmentalize your life I'm not saying walk with God here, and then you step over into this pleasure because God said, all right, you have five minutes, okay? And then you come back. I'm saying you're walking with God, experiencing these pleasures, knowing the joy of knowing God fully, and then enjoying the pleasures of this world inside the boundaries that he has set up. They are for your protection, and they allow you to experience it without all the destruction. This also brings up a question of worship. Everything that's been created um, was created for a purpose. You can try to take something outside of his purpose, but the creator itself, the inventor or whoever's putting it together, has an idea of what that thing will do. And you were invented with a purpose. You were given lots of original characteristics that are unique to you, but your ultimate purpose is to worship and glorify God. You were built to worship. And I promise you this, you will worship something. Your choice is where you direct that worship. And this is where things become a problem. It was a problem for Rico. He worshiped the days of glory that he almost had. He was stuck in that time. For you, 
Well, let's define worship real quick. Worship is whatever you esteem as the highest thing in your priorities. It's whatever you're giving your most affection and attention to. It is the highest thing on your list. So worship that is misdirected causes a lot of problems. And this could be many things in your life. It could be some kind of sin. It could be some addiction. But it also could be your job. It could be your kids. It could be your family. It could be your reputation. It could be your comfort. Or even it could be the act of worship itself. You could love coming in here and singing together and totally miss the direction of who you're supposed to be loving on. Because you just love to sing. And you love doing it together. You're pretty sure you love Jesus. But I love the experience of being with everybody. This is not what God's calling us to. God wants all of you. And he wants to be the most important thing in your life. So you, if we get honest, what are we, where, who, yeah. If we get honest, what or who is receiving our worship? What's in the place of that highest priority in our lives? In the spring, it's like 65 degrees outside. It's a beautiful day. The days that I miss right now, you know, where you don't melt on the way to the car. And I was coming out of Kroger with my kids. We had picked up something for dinner, and we came out, and a Lawn Storm was coming into the, into the place, which is the coolest name of all time, right? Lawn Storm. If you don't know Lawn, Lawn is a 74-year-old man who is um, one of our um, great members here who um, is on our uh, pastoral care committee. Like, he loves on people like nobody's business. Lawn is from Orange County, California. Um, uh, came to really love the Lord a little bit later in life, um, but man, he is all in. And I came out of the store, I saw Lon, had my kids with me, and I said, oh, let's go say hi to Lon. So we walk over there, I give Lon a hug, I said, what's going on? He goes, he looks around, he goes, this is a beautiful day, this reminds me of California. I'm like, yeah. And then he says, he starts to weep. He goes, you know what I did today? I've been praying for my roommate, and he accepted Jesus for the first time. What I saw in that moment was not a guy who said, man, I miss the weather of California. That was the greatest thing of all time. He said, you know what is the greatest thing? At 74 years old, I get to be used by my God still. Because this is where my priority is. I want to love God and honor God. And I'm 74 years old. And he just allowed me to be part of somebody's salvation. And this joy in his face and this weeping. And I, I stood there and I was like, Kids, remember this moment. Remember this. This is a common occurrence for Lon because he's full in. Jesus is the object of his affection and his attention over anything else in his world. I was privileged to witness that. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Speaking of Jesus here. All the things that he fulfilled. Now there's a word up here that makes this verse a little scary to me, to be honest. 
Kevin, can you circle the word might for me? Beautiful. This is a feature that I've never used, and I always thought it would be really fun to use it. So, well, you're getting out of control now. <laughs> he's, all right, he thinks he's John Madden, but, okay. All right, perfect. Okay, great. All right, serious business now. That he might be preeminent. God did all of these things. He gave Jesus, walked on this earth, suffered a horrible death, showed you what real love was in such a, such a painful way they had to invent a word for what it felt like to die on the cross. Excruciating. To usher you into the kingdom. And they set up this priority list here and then they use this word, he might be preeminent because God knows I built you to worship but you get to choose what you worship. So there's a possibility that I will not be the most superior thing in your life. Scary. This all leads in to what Solomon's saying. You have to make him the greatest priority or you will be lost in the pleasures of this world. And if that's where your satisfaction comes, you will never find it later because guess what? You can't, your body just doesn't do it anymore. But if like my brother Lon at 74, you find such joy in someone finding their salvation in Jesus, you get to experience the joys. I mean, you can witness on your deathbed to whoever's standing there if this is where your joy lands. In Jesus alone. Very last section of Ecclesiastes 12. He said, the last and final word is this. Fear God and do what he tells you. And that's it. Eventually, God will bring everything that we do out into the open and judge it according to its hidden intent, whether it's good or evil. So you wrap a whole book of the Bible around this little phrase. Fear God. Do what he tells you. Because even the, the most wise man in history, the man that God gifted wisdom to, he said, he still really knows more than me. I have a the great gift of talking to baptisms before they happen and getting to hear these stories from people. We baptized 12 people at 920 service today. It was crazy. A ton of people. And I was talking to one lady, and um, it was a very cool conversation, and um, she's was wondering if it was okay for her to get baptized because she was trying to, she realized she hadn't had it, doesn't have it all figured out. I'm like, well, join the club, okay? Like, me understanding everything about God is pretty much, I think, this is probably a simplization of this, but it's like my dog understanding where I go during the day, right? And I'm pretty sure I leave and he goes, what? Oh no, I loved him so much. Oh, gosh, is anyone else here? Oh, dang. And then I come home and he's like, you're back! I never thought you'd come back, right? I mean, because he doesn't, he doesn't understand I got to work and all those things. And this greater knowledge of God, Solomon really wraps up in this piece by saying, you know, hey, fear God, do what he tells you. Because if you get lost in these pleasures, if you get, if you get lost in the glory of what it was to be young, you will be miserable when it comes to these days. 
Now, for some of you, you might hear all of this and you'd be like, well, I'm not, I don't really think I'm young anymore. <laughs> what do I do with that? Well, there's no lost cause in this room. Not one of you. You have a graceful God who wants to teach you these lessons right now. Who wants to instill scripture on your heart that you will be saying until the day you die. Who wants to interact with you because this is a God who longs for a relationship with his children so much that he let his son die on the cross to call you holy, to usher you back into the presence with him because sin separated us from that. He wants to be with you. So today, you get to make a decision like every day. If as you wake up, whether I will live surrendered in this day or I'll live for myself, if I'll live for the pleasures of this world or I'll live for the God who created these pleasures so that I could experience them in a healthy way instead of leading me to destruction. So I encourage you to take a step to move forward to the God who loves you so deeply that he'd give his son to die for you and gives us beautiful words like this to show us a life that we could live to really know the joy and the freedom of a relationship with Jesus.